Good evening. Is it on? I am on? All right. All right. Everybody hear me? No. Okay. No, I, I can hear it now. Okay. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, good to see everybody this evening. Um, I don't know how many people have mentioned this when they've gotten up to teach this class, but our theme for the quarter or the series that we're doing was great chapters in the Bible. And I was really interested when we kind of set it up to see what everybody picked. Um, and I've, I've really enjoyed uh, what, what's been done so far. Um, as you, you might or might not recall, I think everybody that's taught so far has taught from the New Testament, um, which is fine. I think the way people kind of think about a great chapter uh, in the Bible can change, can be varied in kind of how they approach that thought. Um, but so far it's all been New Testament, but we're going to, as you can tell from behind me, we're going to delve into the Old Testament um, tonight. When I, thought, when I think about great chapters in the Bible, um, one of the things that draws me is kind of getting to the fundamentals, the basics, the real heart of what it means to have a relationship with, with God. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about Deuteronomy 6 tonight. And Deuteronomy 6 is all about the relationship between God and his people and vice versa. God's people and their God. Um, that's what Deuteronomy 6 is all about. It is completely fundamental to the relationship between the children of Israel as they prepare to enter into the land and Yahweh. And it describes uh, in pretty vividly and really sums up um, who God is and how the children of Israel are supposed to view him and relate to him. Um, I don't know, if you were in my class, I taught Deuteronomy, I think, last summer. Um, if you were in that class, this will be uh, somewhat of a repeat. But the book of Deuteronomy itself is my favorite Old Testament book. Um, I really enjoyed teaching it last summer. It is um, it's one of the more theological books, probably the most theological book in the Old Testament. So think of a comparison of being kind of the book of Romans in the New Testament or the book of John. It talks a lot about the nature of God and, as we talked, I mentioned a minute ago, the relationship between God and, and his people. Just to kind of set the stage um, for what's, you know, what's going on in Deuteronomy, you have the children of Israel. They've been wandering for approximately 40 years in the wilderness um, because they went uh, to, they were prepared to enter the land. They sent in the spies. The spies came back, and they said, well, we can't take the land. So God punished that generation. A lot of times we forget that generation is the same generation that saw all the plagues in Egypt, uh, left after the killing of the firstborn, um, crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, went to Mount Sinai and witnessed the fire and smoke on the mountain, the Ten Commandments were given to them. They then went to the land, and yet they still failed to <laughs> trust that God was going to give them the land. So they wandered for 40 years. That generation, save two, all died away. Well, I guess save three, Moses, Caleb, and, Joseph, and Joshua. 
They all died out, and so now they are back at the border of Canaan. They are about to enter into the land. Moses has been told by God that he will not be entering. So Deuteronomy is Moses, essentially Moses' farewell address to these people that he's led for, for many, many years. Um, at the end of Deuteronomy, you know, Moses dies, and there's a little bit of an exposition about Moses, and it talks about how, what an important role Moses played uh, in this time and with these people. It's, Moses' importance can't really be understated, um, or sorry, can't be overstated. Um, he was vital. He was you know, the lawgiver or the mediator that God used to give the law to this, to this people that he, were, were his treasured possession. So anyway, they're on the other side of the Jordan River. They're getting ready to go in, and Moses is going to give these three sermons. So Deuteronomy is really a book that's split into three sermons. There's a short, there's a little bit of an intro, then there's a short sermon. There's a longer sermon in the middle, and then there's a short sermon at the end. Um, and they're the last three kind of sermons that Moses gives. The role that Moses is taking on here in Deuteronomy is different than the role that he was taking in Exodus and in Leviticus when he is almost the direct line from God to the people. This is much more of an exposition. So you have Exodus and Leviticus are given from Sinai, essentially straight from God to the people. They've now been living with the law for 40 years or thereabouts. Moses now, very much like what you know, what Chuck does on a Sunday morning or other preachers, he's taking the law and he's trying to put a little bit more explanation on what's going on, why we're doing this, why we're doing that, why this is important. So he's adding some explanation, uh, some uh, additional thoughts onto the law that was given in Exodus and Leviticus. So that's really what Moses is doing here. And he's trying desperately and you'll see that when we get into the text. Moses is trying desperately to get across to these particular people who God is, what he's done for them in terms of redeeming them and saving them from their slavery in Egypt and what they, how they should view that relationship. And it's, you know, if, you've, if you read Deuteronomy maybe last year as part of our Bible reading um, you might think to yourself, wow, Deuteronomy is really repetitive. He says the same thing over and over again. He reminds them about entering the land and don't follow their gods and don't do this and do that. Well, there's a reason he's doing that. Number one, he's witnessed how, and he uses the term in Deuteronomy, how stiff-necked this people is. So what do you do? You hit him over the head with it over and over and over again. Another reason he's doing that is, think about at this time, the law that was given outside of the Ten Commandments, the law that was given at Sinai was not written down, okay? There is nothing written down. Everything was given orally. It's an oral history society, okay? So how do you memorize, because they would have to memorize these things. How do you memorize it? Well, you say it over and over and over again, and he's gonna, that's going to come up in Deuteronomy 6, so just kind of keep that in mind. The purpose of Deuteronomy, I'm going to 
I wrote a sentence or wrote a sentence down here I want to just kind of read from. It says, the primary theme or purpose of Deuteronomy is to call every generation of Israelites to faithful covenant love for Yahweh in response to his gracious salvation and his revelation of himself, and secondarily in acceptance of the missionarial role to which he called them. As, we're, as you read Deuteronomy tonight and then later, really put yourself as a Christian in place of the Israelites with whom Moses is talking to. I think if you do that while you're reading it, you will see the immense amount of similarity and applicability of what Moses is telling this people with what um, we are told as Christians. Um, The relationship that we as God's people under the current covenant should have with our God, Yahweh, because it's the same God. He's talking to his chosen people, the Israelites at this time, but now um, us under this new covenant. It talks a lot about covenant relationship, which is, if you remember, when Jesus is uh, establishing the Lord's Supper, he talks about how his blood is the blood of the new covenant. We're still, the people of God are still in a covenant relationship with him. And the book of Deuteronomy hits covenant relationship all over the place. So it's, it's an incredibly applicable book, even though it was you know, written down hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, there's a lot of applicability for us as God's people today. So with that, we'll go ahead and get into the text of Deuteronomy 6. So we'll just, we'll, I'm going to start out by just reading the first three verses. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey all, sorry, be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. All right, so this is actually a holdover from the last chapter. Um, there's a couple verses there that would be included here. As you, you know, as you know the, page, uh, the chapter breaks didn't come until very much later, so this wouldn't have had chapter breaks. So this thought is a continuation of the thought that was finishing chapter 5. Um, chapter 5 of Deuteronomy what Moses has just done is gone over the Ten Commandments again. Okay, so in chapter 5, he goes over the Ten Commandments. And he, he, if you read the Ten Commandments as they're told in Exodus, um, and then you put beside it what Moses tells them in Deuteronomy, there are some slight variations. Because as I mentioned, Moses is it's more of an exposition than just a straight retelling. So Moses is, is adding some things to try to better explain why certain things are important and what, what is kind of underlying uh, these laws. But anyway, he's just told the Ten Commandments. He is now, for the next several chapters, he is going to expound on primarily the first commandment. Um, and that's what chapter 6 does. It's, it's the beginning of this exposition about the first commandment and what it means, which is, You'll have no, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And he starts out by saying, these are the commands, the decrees, and the laws. The Lord your God directed me to teach you. You are to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So, you know, again, Moses is telling them, you're about to go on this land. These are the laws you're supposed to observe when you get into the land. So that your children, their children after them may fear the Lord as long as you live by keeping his decrees and demands that I give you and that you may enjoy long life. So he's telling them, you're going to go into the land. If you do this, as I'm telling you, um, you're going to live a long life. You're going to live an abundant life. And he's going to go into that more in a minute. And you're going going to enjoy it. But the promise of the land is a conditional promise. Okay? God has already... The way Moses writes this and says it, God has already fulfilled the promise. He's given them the land already. They're just not in possession of it. But it's already theirs. The the promise has already been fulfilled. They literally just have to go in and take possession of it, okay? And, you know, it's been described as a land flowing milk and honey, this and that. But what Moses is telling him, and he's going to talk about it more in a minute, God's fulfilled his promise, but the covenant is a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. In order to maintain the land and the things that are going on here, which is the long life, long in the land, you've got to fulfill it back. And the way you fulfill your covenant relationship back to God is by keeping his commandments. And the commandments are the Ten Commandments that he's already mentioned and then the exposition that he's about to give with regards to what that all means, okay? So just keep in mind, it's a, the, the covenant relationship is a two-way street, and um, it requires a commitment on both sides. And when you think about covenant relationship, we'll talk about this more in a minute, think about the marriage relationship. That's a covenant relationship. Marriage doesn't really work too well if it's only a one-sided relationship. It's, it's not going to last very long. And if you think... Um, if you think about the way the covenant relationship is described in the New Testament, Christ and the church, bride and bridegroom, marriage relationship. You can think of it the same way here. God is in this marriage relationship with his people, and therefore it, it requires action. So you express your love through action, not just in words. I mean, you can tell somebody that you love them all day long, but if your actions don't reflect that, it's not worth much. So Moses is going to tell the people in this chapter what covenant love looks like, and it is obedience to the commandments of God in this case. Okay, so let's go to verse 4. This is one that I think everybody's familiar with. This is what's known as the Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. All right, so I'm just going to stop right there. This is, this is possibly the most famous verse in Deuteronomy. Everybody in here can probably quote it. It's been quoted uh, as a part of Jewish tradition and Jewish um, practice for generations and generations and generations. It, it forms the bedrock or the cornerstone of the covenant that was established with Israel. It's the, fundament, it's the fundamental call to the Israelites of this, um, this covenant love, this covenant relationship that they have. What's interesting about this verse is it's very difficult to translate. So 
there, there are actually four ways to translate that. And the reason is, is this verse here is three words in Hebrew. So it's three words. It's Yahweh, and that Yahweh is in there twice. So, so it's Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. That, those are the words that are there. There are no verbs. It's just Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. So a translator looks at that, and that's hard to translate into modern-day English. Um, so there are kind of different ways to look at it. And I'm going to tell you about a couple of those. There are two key questions to ask those as a translator of this particular of these words, which is number one, where do you put a verb? So in this case, where do you put an is? So that's the first question. The second question is, how do you define the word one? Okay, so it's Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. How is that word one defined? There's kind of two ways that that word, that Hebrew word, is used in the Bible. Most commonly, it's used as kind of the numerical one. Or unique, okay, but in other in a few other cases it can mean alone, and you'll you'll understand why that's significant in just a second. Um, in my little Bible app here, it actually gives the four translations that can be made using these words. So, the first one is the one I read earlier, which is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the ESV translation. That's probably the translation that most of you have in your Bibles. There are three others, though. Um, the next one is, the Lord our God is one Lord. Okay, so the Lord our God is one Lord. The third would be, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And the last one would be, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. All right, so everybody hear that? It's the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, okay? So all, the first three use one in the numerical or unique sense, and the last one uses the alone version. I think both translations are, or the two primary translations are very meaningful, so I wanna kind of give you the side, both sides of them. So let's talk about the one that is you know, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. So the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That reflects kind of a more monotheistic vision of God. So almost a more monotheistic statement. And the reason that's important is think about where the Israelites are getting ready to go. They're getting ready to go into Canaan. And what do we know about the people that live in Canaan? Do they worship one God? They worship many gods, many faith, you know, and their gods that they have have many different faces and natures. So in this case, you have this statement being made about Israel's God that sets him apart from the gods that the Canaanites are worshiping, uh, the people that they're about to come in contact with. This statement is more that Israel's God is unique in all the universe. There's no one else like him. There might be other lowercase g gods that exist, but God is unique and there's only one Yahweh. It also reflects the relationship that God has had with this particular people in the, re the redemptive actions that he has taken on behalf of these people. 
Um, so it, it's kind of them talking back and saying, Yahweh, our God, is God. So throw in an extra Yahweh in there. So Yahweh, our God, is God. He's the one, and besides him, there are no other gods. Okay. So that's kind of the first, first translation of that. So again, it's kind of a monotheistic, unique uh, reflection on God. So not only there's, there's God, and he's the only God, and he's our God. He's, we're his people, and he's our God. He's the God of us. Okay. The other translation that I mentioned that is kind of uh, one that's a little more, more widely accepted is Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Okay. The reason I kind of like this one um, because I think, it, I think it fits really well with the rest of what we're going to talk about in the chapter Think of this one as being like a pledge of allegiance to uh, a pledge of allegiance to God. So, and if you you know, it would be like a group echo type chant almost. So someone would shout out maybe something like this: "Who is the God of Israel?" And the Israelites all together in unison would respond: "Our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone." So basically. It's a, a verbal pledge of their unflinching loyalty to this particular God as the only God. If, um, so, not on, so just like God has exclusively chosen this people, all the, going all the way back to Genesis 12, uh, 12 with Abraham, God has chosen these descendants of Abraham, these particular group of people to be his treasured possession. In response to that, they say this. God is our true God, and we don't serve any other gods. We pledge all of our loyalty and all of our love to this God, which is Yahweh. Um, so it's, it's a reciprocal pledge uh, to Yahweh based on what he has done for them. Okay. All right, so that's verse 4. So let's go to verse 5, which is also very well known. I'm going to read verse 4 and then move into verse 5. So, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. All right. That hopefully is something that is familiar to everyone, and not because it's written in Deuteronomy, but because when Jesus is asked about it, what's the greatest commandment in the law, he cites Deuteronomy. Um, and I, there's something I meant to say earlier that I didn't say. Um, the importance of Deuteronomy is reflected not just in what's going on with Israel throughout its history, but if you read the New Testament, Deuteronomy is everywhere. It's all over the place. Jesus, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, every time he responds to Satan, he quotes Deuteronomy. Um, later, when he's teaching and a lawyer asks him what's the greatest commandment in the law, he cites Deuteronomy, what we're reading right now. Uh, Paul, writing to Corinth, when he writes to uh, the church at Rome, cites Deuteronomy. Um, when Peter is, it's one of his gospel sermons, not, I think it's his second one, he, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is incredibly important. Um, 
So, and just the fact that it's referenced several times in the New Testament as well, as well as the Old Testament, we should pay attention to it. But, so here, when you're talking about this greatest commands, which is to love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, with all your soul, and with all your strength or your might, um, well, let's break that down a little bit. So, in this particular case, the word, the Hebrew word that's used here for heart is really, it's a combination. So when we say heart in kind of modern day terms, it's generally kind of maybe our emotional side, uh, our feelings. Um, you know, you give out hearts at Valentine's Day because, you know, it's a, it's a, feel, it's a feeling-based holiday or whatever. So you, you feel with your heart, you think with your mind, right? You have this, we have this dual relationship. Well, in the way it's used in Hebrew, that's not how it works. Your heart would encompass your thoughts and your feelings. It would all be wrapped up in this word. Heart, it's basically your inner being. So your innermost self. Not what you're showing to the world, but what you know to be true in your head and in your gut. Kind of your, kind of your gut. Um, so that's what it's talking about. So when it talks about you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, it's talking about your innermost being. What makes you up should be about loving the Lord your God. Okay? So... When, as I'm going through this, I want you to think about kind of a target bullseye thing with like, you got a small circle, then you got a bigger circle, and then you got a bigger circle. So in the middle, put your heart, this Hebrew word for heart, okay? Now, the next one is with all your soul, okay? So you got heart in the middle, then you got a bigger circle with your soul. Put out of your mind this. Uh, dualist nature of flesh and soul and when you know we pass on our soul goes somewhere that's not that's not what we're talking about here okay um, this particular word has lots of meanings uh, throughout um, the old testament but one of them is our appetites or our desires um, another way this is used is just our life generally um, and another one would be our whole self so if you think about the heart being our inner self, and then you go to soul, think about that being your outer self, okay, which encompasses your inner self. So it is what you're expressing to everyone that sees you. So your inner self, no one knows that but you. Then you've got your outer self, your life, your, your outer body. That's what everybody sees, and that's what you're representing to the world. So Moses is saying, you love the Lord your God with all your inner self, and now with all of your outer self. So in public, what you're reflecting to everyone you come in contact with should be about the love of God. Okay, so that's, so you've got your middle circle, you've got your middle circle, which is, so you've got inner body, outer body, and then the biggest one is your strength or your might. Now, this goes way beyond your, you know, my ability to come over here and lift this up and carry it over there. So that's a part, one aspect of this idea of strength, but it's way, way more than that. It's basically any and all resources that you possess, okay? And not just physical resources, it can be your social capital. You have lots of friends, you're, you have influence in your community. Um, it can be your economic resources. You have lots of cattle or lots of donkeys. Uh, it's back in this day. Um, it can be your abilities. So I'm a woodworker. I can, you know, 
I can, I'm a shepherd. I can do, you know, things like that. Whatever it is that is a, makes you up as a person uh, that goes into how you make a living and stuff like, stuff like that, that also needs to reflect your love for God. So basically, when you get done with these kind of circles, so you've got this inner circle, this middle circle, and this outer circle, that makes up every part of your entire being. That's really what Moses is getting at here. Every part of your being, everything that you do, everything that they were supposed to do, but again, it's completely applicable to us. Everything that we do should be in relation to our love and devotion to God. God should be at the forefront of everything we're doing in life, from our thoughts and our feelings to how we're projecting ourselves into the world to what we do on a day-to-day basis with our uh, talents and abilities. So that's really what, what that's all about. Another thing that's different here, up until this point, almost exclusively when it talks about the people's relationship with God, it's usually put in the context of, you shall fear the Lord your God. It's almost always put in this couch in this idea of fear or reverence. You know, you should have reverence for God. And here, there's a, little, there's a change to the word love. Okay, you shall love the Lord your God. And what Moses is trying to get across to the people is while they should have a healthy fear and respect for God, if they look back and see what God has done for them in the redemptive actions that he's taken, that sh- we, the response should be love. Because what, what God has shown to them obviously is love. That should be the reciprocal response. You know, he's rescued them, as I mentioned before, he's rescued them from their plight in Israel after 400 years. He's shown them all these amazing signs. He's done all these amazing things. He not only brought them out of slavery, he then saved them from the army that was chasing them. He has fed them in the wilderness every day for 40 years when they had nothing else. He's completely sustained them. And this is kind of where it gets back to the love that he's talking about there is not the, you know, feel-good, lovey-dovey love. This is the committed covenant love where is reflected not in the words that you say, but in the actions that you do. It's a committed relationship that we're talking about here. And this gets back to later in different parts of the Old Testament, but one very famous one, which is in Micah chapter 6. This is the heart and soul of the law, is the Lord is God, and we are to love him with all of our being. It's not about the... If you go back and read Deuteronomy, there isn't any mention of sacrifices until way late in the book of Deuteronomy. It's mostly talking about this stuff, and it's expounding on this point right here. The law was supposed to be designed not to get people to sacrifice a bunch of animals. That wasn't what it was about at all. And I think that's when Jesus comes and talks to people about the law and what it, how it was supposed to be, that's generally what he's trying to get across, that they've missed the whole point. It's not about washing. It's not about the sacrifices. It's about loving God and having that right relationship between yourself, recognizing what he's done, 
and reciprocating that in love. So that, that all, that's all formed right here when Moses is talking to the people. Okay. All right, so I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave verse 5. I've got about 10 more minutes, and we've got several verses to go. So we'll, we'll get there. All right. I'm now going to go, this, I'm going to read verse 6 to verse 9. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on the gates. As Moses is going through there, he tells them the commandments that he's, that he's giving them should be on their hearts. He should, you should impress them on your children. You should talk about them all the time. When you sit at home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So you should be talking about them in the morning when you wake. You should be talking about them when you go to bed at night. And anytime they're in between, you should be talking about them. Again, keep in mind, we're talking about a society where stuff's not written down. The way that a child would learn about this stuff is because their parents, their uncles, their brothers, their, other, their siblings, their grandparents would talk to them about it all the time. And they would beat it in there and beat it in there and beat it in there. So then when they were a parent or an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent, they could then repeat it almost verbatim back to their kids, their grandkids and their nephews and their nieces. That's how this got passed down. Moses knows this. They all know this, which is why he's so repetitive in what he's telling these people all the time. But he then talks about how you should tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. You know, if, if you work with your hands like most of these people do, you're going to look at your hands all the time. So that's why he's kind of pointing that out, is tie as symbols on your hands so that when you look at your hands to work with them, it's there. Tie them. You know, make them, put them right here in the front of your forehead so that it's always in front of your face. The whole idea of phylacteries that some of the uh, Pharisees would wear comes out of this portion of Deuteronomy. Um, You're supposed to put them on your door frames so that when you leave the house, you have to walk through it and see that God's law is written on your door frame. When you come into the house, it's written on your door frame. You have to pass under it. When you leave the city to go out to the fields, you're seeing it on the, on the gates. When you come back in, you're seeing it. It's everywhere. It should be everywhere. It should completely permeate every aspect of your life. And if it does that, then it's going to be really hard to forget who you, know, who you are loyal to, who you have a covenant relationship with. You know, the, the whole idea of absence makes the heart grow fonder. Moses doesn't go with that. I mean, that, that doesn't apply here. It's, no, not, it's the opposite of that. It's, I, you should be thinking about it and doing it all the time. And that's how you develop um, that close relationship. And that's how you develop it for the next generation is they have to see you, not just hear you. That's important, but they have to see you acting that out every single day. All right, I'm going to move to verse 10. You know what? I didn't even click that. Sorry. Hopefully you all. Don't feel like you missed out on it. Um, all right, so I'm going to go to verse 10. And I'm going to read 10 through 12. When the, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you. 
and a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when, the, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay. Did anybody, did, while I was reading that, did you catch what they're about to enter? Okay, so God, number one, he starts out with saying, when God brings you into the land. Not if, when God brings you into the land. Because again, the promise is already filled. All they have to do is go in. Okay, so when God brings you into the land, he swore to your father, so he's reminding them of the covenant. It's a land that's with large flourishing cities that they did not build. So they're going to go in and occupy these cities that they didn't have to build. Um, they're going to have water from wells that they didn't have to work to dig. Their houses are going to be filled with all kinds of food and things that they didn't have to create. They're going to have vineyards and olive groves to represent plenty. So food, a plenty that they didn't have to plant. Hopefully you have this idea um, in some ways of, you know, when it talks about this land flowing with milk and honey idea, it's talking about a land that just produces without them having to work. It should kind of picture, remind you of the situation that, it, that existed in Eden. God planted the garden and put Adam and Eve in the garden and they didn't have to work. It just produced. This is a similar situation or as it's described to, to us and to them, this is a similar situation. They're just going to go and it's just going to be there for them. Now remember, this particular people has been walking around in the desert for 40 years. They've never experienced this kind of thing before. Um, they've, ha- they've completely and wholly relied on God to feed them manna every day, except for the one day that he didn't provide it, which they were supposed to get double the day before. But So they've been in a situation, remember they complained because they didn't have any meat and God provided them with meat. They didn't have water, so they got water. They've been completely relying on God, yet they still complain. They're about to go into a completely opposite situation where they're going to have more than they could ever want. Okay, The land is just going to provide it because if they do what God says, he's going to make it grow. Well, so what is the warning here? The warning is complacency. So up to this point, the, they've been in this desperate need situation. Well, now they're going to have the complete opposite. They're going to be taken care of so well, the fear is that they're going to get complacent. And what happens when you get complacent? You get very comfortable And you start to think, well, yeah, I did this, and I did that. And, you know, things are just going to happen without me having to do anything. And um, you kind of, you start to forget that, um, you know, the Lord provided this for you. And you might forget about the Lord altogether and just think it's going to go on like this forever, and it doesn't really matter if God's with us or, or if he's involved at all. I think if we look back, I mean, if you look at the children of Israel in particular, you know, this is exactly what happens. They do get complacent. They do forget their, their God. They forget the law. 
they start to follow the other gods. Um, I think this particular warning can speak volumes to those of us living where we live and the time that we live. Um, we are so comfortable. We have so much. We, I mean, we all, you know, I'm not saying we don't work. Uh, you know, I went to work today. I'll go to work tomorrow. Um, I'll work hard. But if <laughs> we are quite comfortable here, we have more in terms of money and stuff than any society that's ever, I mean, exponentially more than any society that's ever existed. Um, I mean, it's really hard to fathom how, how advanced we are and how much we have. It's really, really easy for us to uh, either think it, we did it all ourselves, oh, look at the majesty of man and all that man has been able to do. And we completely forget or ignore, um, ignore God. So I find this particular warning that he's given to the children to be really applicable to us. Um, so I, I was glad I was able to, to get there. I think I only have a couple minutes left. Um, let me look at, I'm going to look at 13 to 15 really quick. It says, fear the Lord your God and serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Here, you know, he's warning them against idolatry. And later in Deuteronomy, you know, God tells Moses they're going to fall into idolatry. Um, but here he's warning them against idolatry. He talks about God being a jealous God. Again, this gets back to this covenant relationship they're supposed to have. And if you think of it like a marriage, you know, if the Israelites go after other gods, it's the same as them committing adultery in this marriage, covenant marriage relationship. Of course, you know, that when God talks about being jealous, that's the kind of jealousy we're talking about, this pure, righteous jealousy like a husband or a wife for their spouse. And if someone interferes with that, somebody's going to get, going to be jealous and be angry. Um, so that's what we're talking about here. And this gets back to this whole conditional promise. If you don't do what I say and you follow these other gods and you act like Canaanites, I being, or Moses saying, God is going to treat you like Canaanites. If you don't act like his treasured possession, his people, and you forget all the things that I'm telling you, then you're going to be treated just like the Canaanites that you're going in to dispossess. And as we know, that's exactly what happened. It took hundreds of years, and it only took hundreds of years because of God's immense patience and long-suffering, which is shown over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. But I apologize for not getting through um, all of it, but I really did want to spend a lot of time on the first part just because it's so very fundamental to not just the children of Israel and what we read about throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Really, I mean, it is, it is a fundamental cornerstone of uh, the relationship between God and his people forever. And it doesn't change. The God that, they're talk that Moses is talking about is the same God that we serve. The principle that he's enunciating here are the same principles that we should be abiding by now. So anyway, that's what I wanted to get across. Anyway, thank you all so much.